0: Hi folks, welcome to a special two-part edition of the Plugin America show. Joining me today is a co-founder of Plugin America, Chelsea Sexton. In this first segment, Chelsea reviews over 20 years in the automotive industry as well as the movies Who Killed the Electric Car and Revenge of the Electric Car. So this episode is a review of how EVs got to where they are today. In segment two, which will be posted in a few days' time, we'll drill down into the emerging policy landscape as well as attempt to divine where the automotive industry may be headed in the coming years. But first, please consider signing up for the Plug in America newsletter. It's free, or joining or donating to us by visiting pluginamerica.org today. And we appreciate your kind support. Also, please be sure to visit PluginAmerica.org and click the Press Room and Plugin America show tabs for the show notes and links to this episode. hey everybody and welcome to another plug-in America show I'm your host Bob Tregillis joining me today is a co-founder and former executive director of plug-in America Chelsea Sexton she really needs no introduction for long-term EVers, but for newbies out there Chelsea was one of the main talking heads in the 2006 movie who killed the electric car and she was a consulting producer for Revenge of the electric car and currently she does a lot of consulting in the automotive industry welcome the Plug in America show, Chelsea.
1: Why, thank you so much. It's fun to, f- to crash your party again.
0: <laughs> yes, and it's been a couple of years. Too and, long. Yes, and since that time, since we've had you on, we passed the one decade mark on uh, Who Killed the Electric Car, which was, I guess, released in August of 2006. So we're actually a decade plus a year almost. Yeah. Uh, past that. And um, just before the show, we were talking, or you know, I was confirming you were working for GM, uh, selling or leasing the EV1s back uh, in the late 90s. So you've been involved in this for quite some time. What I was wondering, <laughs> what I was wondering, how are things shaking out? You know, maybe you could give us like a little bit of a, a steps you know when you first got into this was it just a job you know when you went to work for gm and then you got really kind of energized about evs and thought wow you saw a whole world full of evs within a short period of time and then suddenly they killed the evs and then now the evs are back so why don't you kind of summarize how you've seen this progress and whether it's matched your expectations or not
1: Right. I mean, it has been quite a long journey, and and generally speaking, one I could never have predicted. Um, I'm not even sure I would have signed up <laughs> had I known
0: <laughs> at the
1: time, just because I'm oh. I remain one of the shyer people in our movement. Um, yeah, I had already been selling cars for a few years by the time EVs came along, more than now, 20 years ago, which makes me feel very old. Uh, <laughs> but it started as more a means to an end. I was trying to pay for university and. Stubbornly self-sufficient, so it was. It was more about that than anything else. And a few years into working for Saturn and selling cars, someone kind of came to me and said, "But they're actually going to do the EV, and, and maybe you would like that." And so I moved over and I started working with it. It took about one drive for me to be absolutely sucked in, fallen in <laughs> love. And I've never really wanted to do anything else in any sort of serious way. So I've I've been very very lucky to get to. Work on EVs and and all of the related technologies, and that's one of the fun parts. You can't work on EVs without working on renewable energy and grid management and autonomous now and connected vehicles, and it leads into all these other fun spaces that go with it. But I I think certainly it's been it's been a you know a real life education along the way. Um, I know the first ten years or so didn't quite go <laughs> as we expected. <laughs> I would say the last ten years or so have gone. For the most part, as I would have expected, based on my experience to date, I know other people have thought things would happen faster or more slowly or whatever. It has actually kind of gone about how I would have predicted. Um, Last year was, was an interesting year for us because it was coincidentally the 10th year anniversary of who killed the electric car, the 5th anniversary, the revenge of the electric car, and the 20th anniversary of the EV1 launch. So it offered a lot of opportunity for introspection and also some interesting sort of anniversary screenings of of one or both of the movies. And what was bittersweet to see in watching Who Killed for the first time in in quite a long time Mm -hmm. for me is just how much of it is exactly the same. The same type of dynamics, the same sort of suspect, so to speak, the same tension between oil and autos and lobbying and politics and fighting the same laws. We're still, you know, who killed, focused on fighting the the California Zev mandate, but also a little bit on CAFE. And we're still having those same battles and conversations. And and even on on Revenge, we primarily focused around a few companies trying to bring plug-in cars back to the roads. GM, Nissan, Tesla. Those are still generally speaking, with a couple of newer ones on the fence, but generally the same players. So we still are in an environment five years even after Revenge when things looked much rosier, where most automakers are still building what we call compliance cars and selling only where they have to, as few as they have to, somehow artificially limiting their EV program to try to keep them small. And as long as that remains true... I mean, it's interesting that after 20 years, the same problem we've always had for EVs is the same problem. I mean, the the single biggest issue has always been lack of product, and it still is. And, and that part hasn't changed.
0: <laughs> well, but then this is where you get into the disruption aspect of the EVs. The automakers are focused on selling cars and selling the cars that are easy to sell and the ones that make them the most profit, and they sure don't wanna be explaining to customers, oh my gosh, you have to put this, you know, charging thing in your garage and hire an electrician and when you're out on the road you gotta find these, you know, charging spots and so on and so forth. We've incentivized consumers to purchase the cars, but it seems like we haven't really incentivized the dealers, at least. I mean, the manufacturers have been incentivized to some degree to do it, but the dealers not so much to sell the cars. So you have that dynamic between the manufacturers and the dealers as well, with the manufacturers fighting the regulations and policies of the federal government and the states, and the various states that we're going to drill into later on in the program, uh, but then you also have the dealers who are pushing back because they just want to move product. You want to right. talk about and, that a little bit?
1: For sure. And and, and dealers, I mean, I, I I see both sides, and I am somewhat sympathetic to the dealer side because I, I have done that. I used to work in a dealer. I used to sell cars. I mean, I get it, what they're up against and where they're coming coming at this from. And I think that one of the challenges has been this the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction to sort of go, all dealers are buttheads, basically, <laughs> rather than... <laughs> I mean, and often the verbiage is worse, but <laughs> instead of just sort of acknowledging what the business model is and therefore how to tweak it or work within it or somehow revise it to be more successful with this technology, we tend to have this knee-jerk reaction of, of assigning it to attitude. And there are absolutely people who work in car dealers that are not, not nice people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they are kind of buttheads in some ways. Um, yep. and, and that's fine, and that exists in every industry. But we're but throwing to the be fair, baby out of the
0: But to be fair, there are ones that have really embraced EVs, too. But uh, but, well, a that's minority. <laughs> minority.
1: There are spectacular ones, too. And, it's, and it tends to be less than an entire dealer. There's, there's generally great people... Within dealers that really love this and want to be a part of it, there are also people within dealers who don't love this don't want to be a part of it see it as something that's going to be more challenging or damaging to their overall business model or whatever and some of that's fair at least in a question sense and some of it's not but rather than acknowledging those realities and digging into the problem, we tend to have this knee-jerk reaction of well that just means that the Tesla model is right instead mm-hmm. and Tesla does a lot of things really well. There is actually almost nothing <laughs> that Tesla was the first to do. It simply was the first to combine them in a really effective way. And they do offer a really good experience to customers. But that's, that's what it boils down to. Tesla's not the first to have corporate stores or mall stores or single pricing or separate sales and service centers. They've combined all those things well, but they're not the first. And that also says they're not the only ones that can And if you think about the sales experience with Tesla, what they really offer, boiled down, is really well-educated salespeople who are enthusiastic about their product in a low-pressure sales environment. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about that that any dealer today could not offer if it chose to. And by the same token, there's nothing about that that we as advocates can't facilitate if we're willing to boil it down and sort of look at the actual aspects that go into that good experience versus cast aside the dealer model altogether because we don't like what it's provided to us so far. But we don't have the luxury of starting from scratch. The franchise dealer model is not going to go away, no matter what Tesla does and whether they succeed in the few states that they're still fighting. These, these two models are going to have to peacefully coexist. And that says we, uh, it's incumbent upon us to improve that dealer side model Because you can do all the product availability in the world. That's problem number one. More product, more variety of product. You can do the best marketing in the world. That's problem number two, facing EVs. But if you solve those two things and people walk in the door and are still put off at a dealer, we've not solved the problem. And in fact, we've wasted a lot of money (laughs) that will be spent on one and two if we kill it with three. So, So dealers are in the top three issues and things to work on, even before we get to stuff like infrastructure. and and charging and battery prices and a lot of the issues that people tend to be very excited and focused on.
0: Right, well, and I've been a big advocate of some sort of a dealer or sharing, you know, like the consumer incentive or setting up a separate dealer incentive to get, you know, to help incentivize dealers and comp them a little bit for the extra work involved in selling EVs. So question occurred to me, I wasn't planning on asking this, but without Elon Musk... Behind Tesla, where do you think EVs would be? Where, would, where do you think Tesla would be? And where do you think the EV movement would be at this point?
1: Well, I mean, Tesla has, has served a very interesting role. And a lot of that is Elon. But in fairness, not all of it is Elon. Right. And it tends to be kind of polarized that way. But there were a, a few founders in that company <laughs> besides right. Elon. I mean, it's <laughs> interesting to meet Tesla drivers now who have never heard. Of Martin Eberhard or Mark Tarpening mm-hmm. or Ian Wright, I mean they just they have no concept that Tesla has ever been anything other than Elon, and that's interesting, <laughs> but it's unfortunate <laughs> uh, and at the same time, there is a there has always been a very large team on Tesla behind Elon so there and, and even our second movie. I noticed this point of tension and it was part of what was in, the interesting part of the story for me was this I, this phenomenon where you'd have an Elon or Bob Lutz or Carlos Ghosn sort of dictate this leadership position. We are going to go the way of EVs and sort of, sort of issue a make it so sort of dictate. But the interesting part was all the people behind those singular guys that have to make it so. Well, and that, that exists for Tesla as well. So, you know... Elon and Tesla are intertwined, rightfully so, but there's a lot bigger story to Tesla than than just him. And in some ways, he is the best and worst thing to happen to that company. I mean, he he does amazing things. He puts his money where his mouth is. There's no there's no faulting any of that. And at the same time, there's some culture issues and some attitude and some ego and stuff that occasionally gets in their own way. And it's it's interesting to watch because the The popular paradigm is that you must believe Elon and Tesla can do no wrong. Or you're a hater. (laughs) It's one (laughs) or the other. It's very polarized that way. And so I tend to be assigned to the hater camp even though I've been heavily involved with them for for a very long time. My husband worked there for a long time and and whatnot. And I think they've done some amazing things. But I don't believe any company or any person is perfect. Mm. And, And what seems to be lost is that because it's hard because they're not perfect because mistakes are made that only gives them more credit for what they've actually pulled off and i've had a similar conversation with with gm over the the bolt EV, especially because you know talking to them even after Volt, the idea behind bolts still seems to be we've built a good car the rest will take care of itself <laughs> which a is a little naive and has never been true in 20 years of evs but it dismisses the challenge and that these it actually is hard to do this. EVs are not an easy thing for a variety of reasons. And therefore, the companies that succeed with them and are willing to try to succeed with them, even if there's a few skid knees along the way, it, they take away their own credit by trying to put it in this easy little box. And all of their fans take away the credit they're due by trying to pretend it's this easy little thing. And Tesla will just take care of everything. And it's a foregone conclusion. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) It never will be. But A, on one hand, that says Tesla's not going to be able to do it by itself. And it's not. And at the same time, where those successes actually happen, we need to acknowledge them because they are the challenge that they are.
0: Right. Well, I think uh I'll... I'll generate some hate mail <laughs> for myself well, here, I I real <laughs> quick. Um, well, you know, let's talk. Let's do a little compare and contrast that you brought up: GM and the Bolt with a B. Yep. Yeah. Um, I know. And um, and then we, we had uh, John Volcker on from Green Car Reports a couple episodes back, and we were talking about the Model Three, the Tesla Model Three, and the Chevy Bolt. One of my complaints about Tesla w- with the Model X was they tried to make this crossover SUV type vehicle, yet it was more about style than it was about functionality. My problem being the Falcon Wing doors, and it's like, where do I put my kayak on top of my SUV, (laughs) right? Um, And then at the same time, now we have the Model 3, where Chevy's response was they knocked off the bolt quite quickly as you know i guess as a competitive advantage and got it out there and it's a hatchback versus the model 3 which isn't so it seems like the model 3 is more like a shrunk down sx looking vehicle very stylish looking and all that but it seems like they missed uh, an opportunity to make a more functional car for for a consumer type vehicle would you got any thoughts on that
1: yeah, I mean, I, I see that the I see the subjective differences. Um, I, I have less emotion around some of those choices because I do firmly believe that the thing we need the most in the EV world, the plug-in world, even including plug-in hybrids, is variety. And cars have always been an emotional purchase, or else we would all drive some, you know, a white Honda Civic or something that's very sort of commodity and utilitarian and does the job, but nothing more than that. And of course, most people don't. So not one thing, not one brand, not one model, not one hatchback is going to make everybody happy. And we're trying to sell volumes that are really attainable from that sense. Like nobody needs to sell a million bolts or a million Model 3s in the first year in order to make that program successful. So there's room for those types of choices, design and otherwise, engineering, performance, that allow potential consumers, buyers of EVs, to find the thing that works for them. So I'm, I'm less concerned <laughs> about some of those individual choices, because if they were all the same thing, then that wouldn't be useful in the grand scheme. And and the same thing if and when LEAF 2 comes to market, we're, we've all got fingers crossed for the end of the year, but it'll be interesting to see how that particular model competes or is different or tries to get into that kind of middle ground space that's emerging, This this idea of relatively long range, relatively affordable. <laughs> I get both are a little <laughs> bit subjective. But this whole like thirty five, $40,000 car with something like 200, 250 miles of range, it's not the be-all, end-all. It's not trying to be, but it's in the middle of the two categories we've seen before of really 100-mile utilitarian type EVs versus the high-end 300-mile but $100,000 plus kind of car. So we've got this new category emerging with currently two entrants soon to be hopefully three wow. um and and one of my concerns in the meantime is gm is this idea that the bolt is a really awesome car and i've not spent a lot of time in it but i've driven it and it looks to be very promising everybody i know that has one really likes it but this idea that gm believes they built a good car and the rest will take care of itself yeah. is challenging to me for now it, um, no, because that's never i'll say true. it it's
0: bad <laughs>
1: it's bad it's bad it's Well, it's, yeah, I think it's short-sighted at the minimum. And I know the knee-jerk reaction is like, well, but who cares? That just means that GM will will fail with it and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried about that just from the standpoint that it will be seen as intentional, even if it's not. (laughs) It will be GM killing another electric car. But I'm more concerned about the bigger implications, where if we're talking about that middle ground category, GM has it to itself for a year to two years. And by that, I mean it launched last year, late last year with the Bolt. The next possible competitor in that category, either Leaf 2 or Model 3, will launch at the end of this year. So they will have a whole year of sales to themselves. And then a whole nother year, really, before a competitor will have the same sort of sales data. And the current sales numbers on Bolt are okay, but they're not knocking the socks off of it. It's a little concerning to see that it's not selling as well as one would expect you know when, when things like the leaf several years old are outselling the bolt that's a bit of a concern and i get that there's a, a a geographic distribution argument but the reality is the bolt is already available in most of the places that buy evs so it's not like it's waiting to hit arkansas and that's going to suck up a lot of, of you know, production. It's already in the places that were people buying cars. And so the sales numbers are not going to change a lot with the rest of the national rollout. And the conclusion that will be drawn by analysts and media, for the large part, are going to be, has nothing to do with, you know, sales numbers for Bolt demonstrates demand for Bolt. The conclusion will be even when you make cars reasonably affordable and reasonably long range, people still don't want EVs. And we will see those storylines coming. And we will be battling them for the next couple of years.
0: Wow. And, you know, this also raises another question I have. I remember early on, you know, like five, six years ago, uh, well, I guess when the LEAF was first coming out in 2010, 2011 era, we were often saying in the EV movement that the 100-mile range was like the sweet spot. And now we're seeing that we've got these mid-range Vehicles hitting the market, the 200, uh, 230 mile range vehicles. What's going on there? It seems like, as we know, highway statistics show that 80% of us drive less than 40 miles per day, and the average American household has two vehicles and all that stuff. So it was, I know you're of the camp, and I'm in the camp of EVs as commuter cars, you know, for the particular application of urban commuter type cars. And, yeah, sure, there are the luxury EVs, the Teslas, that you can go do cross-country stuff with, and Elon's broke that mold and gone into that and done that. Um, But suddenly we have these mid-range cars where we're going to be carrying around. Battery prices have dropped, but we're carrying around all this extra weight when we're still only usually driving that 40, 50 miles back and forth to work every day. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's... I think it's understandable, and we can argue that it's not utterly pragmatic, but that's kind of the point, that the cars are an emotional purchase, and to some degree, what those mid-range cars are trying to address right now is the psychology of it, is this idea that we all buy, when we buy cars, we all buy them that do more than we necessarily need. (laughs) If we were just focused on what do we really basically need and nothing more, we wouldn't be driving things like SUVs, um, and we wouldn't be driving True. sports cars or red cars or you know anything else. So there's <laughs> there's some degrees of emotion in all of this, and it varies by particular buyer, but it's always there. And we know that pragmatically, most people don't drive more than around 40 miles a day. There's always the what if, and yeah, you know, 300 400 miles is not yet generally financially attainable in terms of battery prices and stuff. But 200 miles is getting there. And the average new car in this country at the moment is around $33,000, $35,000 in general. So even things like the Bolt or the Model 3 or hopefully the, the Nissan Leaf 2 or whatever that turns out to be called is going to be in that same ballpark. And I think that's part of it of this is what people are used to paying. Therefore, here's the most we can give them within that kind of price range. There is also the psychology of we know what range people actually need, but we all think we need more than we maybe really do, or at least that we know mm-hmm. what we want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we see it a lot in urban areas. Like, you know, downtown Los Angeles from me is around 12 miles or an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one or the other. And in places like Los Angeles, we we spend a lot of time in traffic. but And therefore, the psychology of that is that we feel like we must have gone really far. And so it feels like that should have been 60 or 80 miles, not 12. And that reflects in the range we think we need. So we think we need much more range than we actually do. But there's also this this middle ground attempt of Okay, I get that a mid-range EV is not trying to do the cross-country thing necessarily. Yes, you technically can, but that's not the point of it. But you still want to be able to do at least a little weekend jaunt that's a bit longer than your daily commute and you don't have to go out and think about a whole separate car two or three times a month when you want to do a 100-mile trip or a 150-mile trip versus just that commute. So there is that emerging category. I think we'll still continue to see, and we are, uh, the more the more commuter-oriented cars, especially on the smaller side, and thankfully, <laughs> they're bumping their ranges up from the 70, 80, more to 100, because there is absolutely that psychological inflection point of triple digits, but we'll start to see even those commuter-type EVs continue but come down in cost while we're also seeing the drive towards long range, because Long range is great, but there still is a market for a hundred mile car that's twenty grand, not thirty five.
0: Right, but with the people that are driving the short range cars, a long range, those are tend to be the kind of the geeky early adopter types that just want to do it to do something new. Yeah, it's a novelty, right? Yeah, it's a novelty type thing. That your average person who's has the weekend off, works all week, has the weekend off, and wants to go visit grandma in Denver or whatever, they'll jump in their SUV and go, you know, right. and leave the leaf well, a, in the garage. Yeah.
1: It depends a little bit on where grandma lives.
0: right?
1: <laughs> so, in, in Los, I mean, I, my grandma lived generally 80 miles from me <laughs> from growing up, but it, it does. It depends on what that weekend trip looks like, and it's different for every every person, but the idea that if you're in Los Angeles, for example, that you could go to San Diego relatively easily without having to deal with a whole different car is right. is compelling. And that you could actually go to Vegas, and it's not exactly the same thing as driving a gas car, but if you stop and if you're in a bolt or a Leaf two or a model three, you could do that with one stop. and that's that's still workable. It's still not trying to be the cross country car. And that's the psychological thing too. Like we all have, the most common question is what happens when I want to drive cross country and yet almost nobody ever does. <laughs> right. Or you do it once in your life, but it's not it's, it's the 1% use case and yet you still want that what if question to be answered and it can be answered in a variety of ways. So some will do it with longer range EVs, some will do it with shorter range EVs and a bunch of coupons for rental cars 12 times a year, <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> there's there's different ways to do it and there's also I mean one of the interesting things I find is that to some degree people are focused around providing the singular answer for everybody singular car must do all things same thing on infrastructure we're all worried about wh- what about apartments what about what about you know multifamily what about this one use case that doesn't mm-hmm. fit the 80% of those that are actually buying cars and that's all well and true and valid but we're still trying to grow up to a one percent penetration of sales right. in most areas of the country so we're not trying to reach even half of the country yet and these are all fair questions that will have to be answered and, and we are working on them and people should work on them but we get ourselves into a little bit of a bunch around the idea of if we can't answer every question if we can't solve every use case we haven't been able to start and a successful ev program at this point sells 20 to 50, we'll say, is the is the aspiration. Twenty to 50,000 cars per year. That's like a huge success for, mm-hmm. for any EV program. Anything in five digits is a success for, for most EV programs. We're not trying to sell millions yet. And we have to be a little bit careful about getting in front of our skis in terms of overpromising on what these things can actually do, but also thinking that we need to. We get so defensive around trying to answer that 1% that we lose track of the 98%. <laughs> That works really well
0: for right now. Yeah, well, also, and then like you say, I was reading just this morning, as we know, we've only got uh, half a million cars, half a million, well, I guess 550,000 EVs on the road right now. Um, And I saw, I was kind of surprised, half of those are in California. So it does show that we're still way in the infancy of this um, new platform, automotive platform.
1: It it does. I mean, it shows a few things. One, California has always been kind of the lead in the EV market. And there are a few natural markets that are. At the same time, California is also just, from a population standpoint, we comprise a significant chunk of the new car market in general. So that's to some degree reflected also in EVs and anything else. But given the nature of most automakers so far to merely comply with what they have to do with the regulations and not go beyond them, we have an interesting phenomenon of a couple dozen plug-in cars being available in California and very, very few available in most of the rest of the country. And as long as that remains true, sales are going to be artificially limited and they're going to seem low. And this idea of, but they haven't they haven't you know, penetrated the market significantly in new car sales is always going to be true because people cannot buy what is not available. And there are quite a few states in this country where there are next to no plug-in cars available. Right. And the few that are are in the same category. So you can get a LEAF, you can get a Volt, you can get a Model S or X in most of the country, and you can get a few other things in a few other places, but for the most part, if you're looking for something different than a compact car or something over $100,000, you don't have a lot of choices. That's that's the fundamental issue facing EVs everywhere, even in California, because most of the rest of what we have is still small, compact compliance cars in some form, and, and mostly at or below 100 miles of range. So even in California, we have a bit of a product problem that we have a lot of examples of the same thing, but we don't have that much variety in body style and performance and whatnot Um, the fact that you know we're literally the last country to get something like the Mitsubishi Outlander which is one of the few options available and it's something that's larger size that says a lot and it and as long as EVs to most people mean small cars 100 mile cars and or expensive cars (laughs) There's there's most of the country that's not going to entertain the idea of actually ever using one themselves.
0: Right, and that, that's a great segue because what I think we're going to do is break this into two parts in this segment here, and we'll segue into why this is what the by looking at the policy landscape and what uh, what things look like going forward under the new uh, Trump administration and the EPA, Scott Pruitt uh, running the EPA and so forth. So what we're going to do is end this segment here. So thanks, Chelsea. Thank you. This has been another edition of the in America Show. Thanks so much for listening. And please help us get the word out about Plugin America and EVs by pointing your friends and family to the Plugin America website at pluginamerica.org. There, you'll find a wealth of information about EVs, our plug-in vehicle tracker that tells you what EVs are available, what's coming and when, a blog, information about EV chargers and public charging, multimedia content, promotional materials, and much more. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us there. If you'd like to find out more about me, my name is Bob Tregillis, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. And please remember, in America is a nonprofit electric vehicle advocacy group, and our work is supported by your generous donations. Please consider donating by visiting pluginamerica.org today, and we appreciate your kind support. Thanks to Engelgord, whose music was used here by permission. And until next time, remember, at Plugin America, we drive electric, and you can too.